0: Well, it's the most common thing we hear this time of year, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. But there are some of us who struggle with emotions and anxieties during this time. And even though we might return the greeting, deep inside we're saying something like this, I don't feel merry. And it's something that many of us experience. Uh, The mental health uh, professionals tell us that depression is higher this time of year than any other. And there are various ideas and guesses about why that's the case. Maybe it's memories of loved ones who are no longer with us. Could be because we go through times of self-examination at the end of a year or the beginning of a year. It could be seasonal affective disorder with less sunlight. But at the end of the day, the one thing that we know is that many of us have more feelings of anxiety and depression this time of year than any other. And it's kind of unusual when you think about it because all the songs say it's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, hospitals and police tell us that there are more suicides and attempted suicides this time of year than any other. And 45% of Americans, according to one survey, 45% of Americans dread this time of year. And so in our series, Holidays, I felt like it would be important for us to take a day and take it head on, face on, and ask the question, why do many of us have feelings of sadness and feelings of anxiety this time of year? And what can we do about it? Well, there's one reason why I want to share this message with you today, and that is, I know what this is about personally. Five years ago, I went through one of the toughest seasons, actually, I went through the toughest season of my life, and it hit just about this time of year. In fact, December 23rd, 2010, found me at the airport with Mary Alice getting on a plane to fly to Phoenix, basically to just get me out of town because I had sort of hit the wall. And what was challenging about that or unusual about that is that I'd been a very strong individual. For years, I'd been the large and in charge. I'd been the leader at the head of the table that people would turn to and say, well, what do we do? But all of a sudden, I found myself not wanting to talk to anybody, not wanting to be around anybody, not feeling any of the joy of the Christmas season. And so much so that my wife, who's known me since she was 14, knew something is very wrong with Mark. And so on December 23rd, 2010, as I said, I found myself walking away from my favorite time of year here at New Spring, Lord knows the Christmas Eve services, I'll live for them all year long. I'll be sad when they're over. And yet in 2010, I watched the Christmas Eve services here at New Spring on the patio of a condo in Phoenix, Arizona, thinking I would give anything to be here. So I'm going to talk about that today. And this is my my fourth time to give this talk. We have five services at New Spring. And I'll I'll be honest with you, this is awkward for me telling my story but I do it because I feel like some of you out there perhaps might benefit from hearing from a guy who had gone through life handling things pretty well, and all of a sudden, in a Christmas season, I found myself coming apart at the seams. But before I get into today's talk, could I just tell you some things that maybe will help us get set for what we are or aren't about to experience. The first thing I want you to understand is if you deal with depression, the sermon is not going to cure you. You know, the mind and the emotions can become ill just like the body can become ill and some of you know this. For instance, if your body becomes ill, it's probably because you have a chronic issue that has to be managed medically, or you have an episode of something. And so when you go to the doctor, it's because something is not going right with your body, either chronically or episodically. And the same thing can happen with your mind or emotions. Some of you deal with a form of depression that's chronic, and you have to manage it. For others of you, It'll be sort of below the surface, but you'll have an episode in which you, the term I use is hit the wall. You can come up with your own term. But the mind and the emotions can become ill just like the rest of the body. And here's something I want to say to all of you who love somebody who deals with an emotional disorder. I want you to understand something. And that is that just like the body takes time to heal, the mind and emotions take time to heal. The reason why we don't think that about the mind and emotions is we know that we're not thinking correctly. And so all we feel like, those who don't deal with this, what we feel like is, well, once that person starts thinking right, they can snap out of it. Hey, if you deal with depression or anxiety or panic attacks, you know better than anyone else, you would like nothing better than to snap out of it. But the mind and emotions take time to heal, just like the body takes time to heal. There's one thing else I want to say before I get started, and that is that strong people often have emotional and, and psychological pain and disorders. In fact, when you look at the Bible, you'll find some of the Bible's greatest men and women struggled with some of these issues. How about Elijah? <laughs> Elijah, is a, he's like a poster child for anxiety. I mean, he is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, and yet you find him at one point asking God to just let him die. Rachel, Peter. Moses, Hannah, those are just some of the few, just a few of the names of the legends in the Bible who dealt with emotional disorders and issues. So today I want to talk about it, and with the understanding that this message is not going to heal you if you deal with a chemical disorder any more than if you have diabetes, which is also a chemical disorder. There is no sermon that can heal you from diabetes. But the reason why I bring this talk is this. Every one of us needs to have a particular kind of visit with our doctor. We need to go sit and talk with her, talk with him, not so much when we're ill, but just a wellness visit to say, how can I be more healthy? What, what kind of nutrition can I em- employ in my life? What kind of activities can I employ in my life in order to be healthier? And so even though today is not going to be a cure for depression, and by the way, could I just take a time out in this sentence? If you're dealing with feelings of sadness or depression, or anxiety or panic. Please don't say, well, I'll deal with this in January. I don't have enough money right now because the holiday season is on me. If you're dealing with a time of emotional disorder or stress, talk to a professional about it now. You know, I I, I said this to Mary Ellen. This is the first time I've said anything about this to her. Um, but this week I was saying, you know, I have a very good friend in Wichita who's a Christian psychologist, and I thought the first week when I wasn't feeling well, I wish I had talked to him because I might not have hit the wall. So with that out of the way, let's talk about what, what is it that we can learn that will help us all think more healthily? Well, in Scripture, I want to start at this particular place. In the book of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the Bible says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. <laughs> you could say, well, Mark, it sounded to me like you were going to talk about thinking, and now you're talking about heart health. Well, you understand, of course, that in the, New- in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the pump in your chest. If we want to know what the Bible's talking about, in Proverbs 23, verse 7, the Bible says, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. So when the Bible speaks about the heart, the Bible is talking about your thinker. Your thinker. Now, when I read that statement, guard your heart above all else, for it's the source of life, I realize that I've just been told three things. Number one, the mind is the control room for everything that happens in my life. Please don't raise your hand. But how many of you ate too much for Thanksgiving? If you did, you could say, well, the problem is my mouth. <laughs> no, the problem is not your mouth. See, my mouth didn't eat anything that my mind didn't tell me to put in my mouth. You know, I. <laughs> thought about this some time back I was going down central and Krispy Kreme was there why is it in Wichita and, and I've lived here 30 years and Lord knows I love Wichita why is it in Wichita when we don't have a particular business we'll drive all the way to Kansas City to go there but once we have it's like oh okay Or at least that's the way I am. You know, I I remember I used to speak all over the country. And long before we had Krispy Kreme, if there was a Krispy Kreme within 30 miles, we would drive to it. But I hadn't been to Krispy Kreme in years. I was driving down Central and I saw that the light was on. And I began to think, you know, Mark, you really love Krispy Kreme donuts. (laughs) And I had that moment, like, should I stop? I'm sort of like the guy who was driving past Krispy Kreme, and, he, and he's a very hyper-spiritual guy, and he said, you know, I wonder if it's God's will for me to have a donut, Krispy Kreme. And he thought about it, and he said, you know what? Here's how I know. I'll drive into the parking lot, and if there's a parking space, I'll know it's God's will for me to eat a Krispy Kreme donut. And sure enough, on the 12th time around, there was a parking space. <laughs> I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know... One Krispy Kreme donut can't hurt me that much. I mean, I'll, I'll do the calorie count, and I'll just account for it in the day. Just one won't hurt me that bad. This is a fact. Drove in the parking lot, went to the drive-thru, came up to the window, and I said, give me one dozen Krispy Kreme <laughs> donuts. Now, let's keep it real. It wasn't my mouth that was at fault there. It was my thinker, okay? So your your mind is the control room for your body. Here's the second thing that we learn from that. Your mind is more fragile than you think it is. If it it weren't, why would God have to tell you to guard it? See, we live in an age today in which we think the sign of a strong mind is to be able to absorb any message that comes into our thinking. And Lord knows there's a panoply of thoughts that get thrown at us from entertainment, from social media, just from the culture at large, from from cable television, cable news. I mean, we get all these things thrown at us, and there can be, if we're not careful, a sense that, well, if I'm a strong person, I can absorb and deal with anything. Do you know what this verse is about? Back in Old Testament days, when one country would invade another country, oftentimes the invading country would dip the tips of their arrows in poison in the hopes that the arrow would find its target and not only inflict the damage of the entry wound, but that the poison might kill the person it struck. But then armies got more diabolic and smarter, and they said, instead of firing poison arrows, why don't we just poison their wells? Because a poison well can kill many more people than a poison arrow. That is exactly where this verse comes from. When the Bible says, guard your heart or guard your mind above all else, One translation says it is the wellspring of life. So in effect, what the Bible is saying is your mind is more fragile than you think it is, and you need to guard what you let into your mind because you're going to drink from that well, and everybody in your life is going to drink from that well as well. Third thing this verse tells me is I'm the gatekeeper from my mind. God holds me accountable to be the gatekeeper to allow messages in or not allow messages in. Years ago, I was speaking in my hometown of Fort Worth. I was doing a conference and I flew into DFW and I went to the rent car desk to pick up my, I think I got a small Ford. But when I got to the counter, the the gal at the counter said, I'm sorry, we only have two cars left. You know, isn't it interesting you reserve something and they tell you that you've got it reserved and yet when they get there, I'm sorry, we don't have it? She said, We have two cars left. The first car was a van. But New Spring, you should understand, it wasn't a minivan and it wasn't a 12-passenger van. It was a delivery van. Now, I'm not above driving a delivery van. It's just I'm the keynote speaker for a main conference, and I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm going to drive up in a delivery van. But she was saving the best for the last. She said, I also have a Cadillac here. And it wasn't just an ordinary Cadillac. It's one of those premium rentals. You know, it had like a million horsepower in it? So I had a lot of fun driving around the Metroplex in that hot rod Cadillac. But the last night of the conference, the senior pastor said, Mark, there are a lot of young pastors who would like to pick your brain. And and he said, you know, we're having like a little function over at one of the guy's houses. Would you be willing to come over and just talk to us? I said, sure. So the pastor rode with me. We rode into the neighborhood, and just as we parked the car, he said, well, maybe I should tell you this is not a real safe neighborhood. There's a lot of vandalism here. He said, I hope that when you get back, the wheels are still on your car. I want to be honest with you. It didn't take me long to share what I knew because I had this vision of the car being jacked up and the wheels being taken off. Now, that's funny, but let me tell you what's not funny is that most of us are way more careful about where we park our cars than where we park our minds. True? Some of us, when it comes to social media, we feel like we have to listen to anything anybody's spewing. No, we don't. Some of us feel like we have to take any criticism or invective that somebody heaps upon us. No, we don't. Some of us feel like, you know what, if entertainment is out there and everybody's watching it, then I need to to watch it too. No, not really. Because you and I are the gatekeepers. And the Bible tells us that we're to guard our thinker above all else because it's the well that we're going to drink from and everybody else is going to drink from also. Well, here's what the Bible has to say. And this is in the book of Philippians chapter 4. I love the verb, the first word. The Bible says, fix your thoughts on what is true. The word fix means to set, like you're setting a dial or setting an indicator. The Bible says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. The best and not the worst. The beautiful and not the ugly. Well, that's what the Bible is telling us to do with our minds. Put your mind on the best not the worst. Put your mind on the beautiful and not the ugly. Well, as we are gatekeepers for our minds, we're going to deal with some bullies. And for those of us who deal with anxiety or we deal with depression this time of year, chances are we're going to encounter one, if not all of these bullies that we're going to talk about today. And as I said at the beginning of this talk, I want to do something that's not very comfortable. I want to share my own story with you. Not that I'm important, it's just that as I share my story, and I have through the years, in fact, if this is one of your first times to be here, I did a series called Intensive Care in which I gave a series on six talks that I learned when I hit the wall. also did another series called Valleys, and there's more in those series if you would like to check it out. But one thing I learned in delivering those series is that there are a lot of people who came to me and said, Mark, I deal with the same thing, and I so appreciate you opening the dialogue because now I feel comfortable in talking about it. It is for that reason today and that reason alone why I open up this can of worms. Here's the first bully that you and I are going to have to deal with. You know, when I hit the wall, I remember it started really the first weekend after Thanksgiving. In fact, it started the first week of the Christmas series, which I look forward to all year. I was doing a series called Things Hereafter, and it was a series about the coming of Jesus and prophecy. And I remember after the first sermon, I just, it was sort of like the perfect storm, New Spring. I I dealt with anxieties all my life, but I had submerged them. For all of you who know what it's like to deal with anxiety or depression, and you keep it, you keep it at bay, and, and you sort of can, that's the issue, you can keep it at bay. And I had done that for years, but I sort of hit the perfect storm at the end of 2010. I had a few health issues, they turned out not to be major, but at the time I didn't know that. And I was just going through some stress, and in fact, good stress. But it had been years of going through challenges and difficulties. And for some reason, I guess I just reached the capacity point. Mary Alice says says this to me often, your body had fired all the adrenaline it had to fire. And I'm an adrenaline junkie. But here's the thing, and this is what I want to get to. I still remember the moment when I went from struggling to free fall. For about two weeks, I struggled with it. You know, I did something that I don't think I've done in all the last five years. This was such a turning point in my life. I've been so thankful to be free from this or to be well from this that I haven't wanted to go back and watch the sermons that I preached because I preached three sermons in that series before I had to leave. And I went back and watched them this week. And for all of you who struggle with depression or anxiety, see if this doesn't ring a bell. When I watched those sermons, I thought, you could have been out in the audience and you would have not known a thing was wrong with me. But see, I knew what was on this side of the eyes. Everybody else knew what was on the outside of these eyes. I knew what was behind these eyes. And as I watched those three sermons, I thought, I'm like a battery-operated device that's just losing power. But I remember when I went from struggling to free fall, and that was when I began to deal with the most vicious of all these bullies. If something is not right in your life, and you fear that you're sick or you're struggling or you're in kind of a black hole, if you're a Christ follower, it is the most natural thing in the world to ask God, God, what is wrong with me? God, is there something that needs to be fixed? And so I can still remember praying that prayer and asking God, God, what is wrong with me? And God, very lovingly, and I don't want you to think that God spoke out loud or wrote anything on the wall. It was just that very quickly God said, Mark, you got three issues. Number one, you don't love me the way you should. You don't love people the way you should. And there's so many things that you do out of a sense of duty. You've lost your your understanding of why you do the things you do. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know what, that's true. I mean, I go seven days a week. I mean, this this ministry has grown ever since I've been in charge of leading it. And there's always been some kind of transition to be involved with. And I just was so young when I started that because there's always this new challenge, I found myself just doing things because I was supposed to do them. And sometimes in the, quote, service of the Lord, I could forget about God And sometimes in the service of people, I could look right through the people I was serving. And oftentimes, while I was doing God's work, I was doing it because I was responsible to do it. Now, if at that moment I had said to God, God, you're right, I need to deal with that, I would have been okay. But instead of doing that... I begin to go into this free fall of guilt and the more I analyzed, the more I saw evidence of my failure and the deeper and the more I saw evidence of my failure, I begin to go to a very dark place, so much so that I actually begin to wonder, has anything that I've ever done been of God? Can you imagine? Mary Alice has been, you know, we we started dating in high school. In the first year that we were dating, I preached a youth revival. So she's been listening to me preach now since she was 14. Can you imagine me asking Mary Alice, have you seen any evidence of God at work in my life? I asked Billy Poor, my executive pastor, who I work with seven days a week. I said, Billy, have you ever seen any evidence of God at work in my life? Rick, Rick Brock is one of our trustees. He's been like a brother to me. He's been at New Spring longer than I have. And I asked Rick, I said, have you ever seen any evidence of God at work in my life? I freaked everybody out. People were trying to tell me, Mark, are you kidding me? We've watched God work in your life for 25 years. But I was in such a dark hole at that moment that guilt had taken charge. Guys, I'm going to tell you something today. And please hear my heart and please listen to me. There is nothing good about guilt. Could you hear me one more time? Because some of us grew up in a religious tradition where we think that guilt is one of the sacraments. There is nothing good about guilt. If there was something good about guilt, why did Jesus come to take it away? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. I mean, if guilt were good... Why would Jesus take it away? And here's the thing. You know what? At that moment, I knew that theologically. The problem with guilt is that it makes so much sense. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all flawed, aren't we? I mean, everybody here is flawed and broken. In New Spring, you don't have to, we don't have to worry about that. If you come from a traditional church, just unscrew your halo and be at peace with the rest of us here today. We're all flawed people. So consequently, if we open the door to guilt, there's going to be evidence that we, we're, we have guilt. See, the problem with guilt is that it just makes so much sense. And when we're not right and we ask what's wrong with ourselves, what's wrong with this guilt is such a convenient answer. You know the story of Job in the Bible, many of you. If you know the backstory of it, you know that Job got caught in a cosmic crossfire between God and Satan. And God was bragging on Job, and Satan said, hey, you know what? He, he serves you because you give him all these toys. Let me take his toys away, and he'll curse you. God said, okay, take his toys away. And then one day, Job lost everything. And beyond that, all 10 of his children were killed in a tornado one day. And God said, look, he, he didn't curse me. And Satan said, well, a person will do anything to save their, save their life. He said, You let me touch his body and cause him to be sick, and he will curse you. And God said, Okay, but you can't kill him. Now, you and I know the backstory, but Job didn't have Job chapter 1. So, what's he thinking? He's thinking the same thing you and I think. If I'm, if I'm having all this disaster, I must have done something really wrong. I must have done something to really offend God. Now, for any of us who have struggled with guilt, I want you to hear the language that Job speaks. In fact, Job 30, verse 31, is probably the most artistic description of depression I've ever read. He said, my harp plays sad music. But now listen to this. If I decided to forget my complaints, because I think probably somebody told him. Somebody just said, hey, Job, just forget about it. Let it go. If I decided to forget my complaints and put away my sad face and be cheerful, I would still dread the pain. Look at this next line. Whatever happens, I would be found guilty. So what's the use of trying? And then look at this line. My own clothes would condemn me. Job is saying, look, it doesn't even do any good to try. What, what, whatever analysis I go through, I'm still going to be guilty anyway. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of words, and it can sound like these are synonyms, and it could sound like I'm playing semantics with you, but there is a universe of difference between these two, ver- two words. The words are conviction and guilt. Conviction, and how I'm defining that is simply when you go to God and God is saying, Hey, Mark, you need to deal with this. That's conviction, and it's curative in nature. On the other hand, there's nothing curative about guilt. If you want to see what guilt makes us do, look at what Job said. He said, I'd be guilty anyway, so I try. On the night of Jesus' arrest, two of his disciples betrayed him. Peter said he didn't know Jesus, and Judas sold him. Peter had conviction. He went and cried and told God he was sorry. Judas went out and found a rope, put it around his neck and hung himself. That's guilt. And guys, I want to tell you, there is nothing good about guilt. But as I said, the problem is it just makes so much sense. And for me at that moment, when I saw all the things that were wrong in my life and all the failures, for me, I hope you understand what I'm saying, guilt sort of became an exit sign. I thought if I could just feel guilty enough, if I could just go to the depth of all my guilt and plumb that depth, if I could just figure out everything I'd done wrong, maybe that would allow me to check all the boxes and God would say, okay, you can come out now. I still remember in that season, I wound up in the office of one of America's greatest Christian leaders. And I knew him to be a great man of God and a great leader. We had spoken at conferences together, the same conferences, but we never met. But just through a series of wonderful coincidences, I was in his office that day. And since in the five years, we've become best friends. What I also didn't know is he had gone through the same thing a few months before. But when I first met him that day, I sat in his office like anybody else would come and sit in my office and talk to a pastor. And I said, listen, I'm going to tell you everything I've ever done wrong. And I said, if I leave anything out, you can ask me about any area of my life, and I'll give you a straight answer. Now, I grew up Baptist, but for that moment, I was going to confessional. And I did. I mean, I laid it all out. All the places where I'd come up short as a leader, all the places where I felt like I'd failed as a Christ follower, and I just laid it out and I said, Johnny, here's everything I've done wrong. Now ask me about anything else and I'll give you a straight answer. I wanted to make sure that I didn't leave any guilt undiscovered. But for all of you who have ever thought that that might be the answer, could I tell you that after that I was no better because guilt is not an exit sign. Isn't it strange that we deal with guilt in the Christmas season? Because Christmas is all about Jesus coming into our world. And what did he come into our world for? We'll read about it in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. Every one of us, we have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you realize the reason that Jesus came into the world was so that our guilt could be transferred to him and he could pay for it? Do you want to hear what God has to say to you today? Do you feel guilt like a cloud that sends over you? Do you feel like guilt is the exit sign? If you can just feel guilty enough, maybe you'll be okay. you want to hear what God really wants to say to you? Isaiah 1.18, God says, Come now, let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, I will make them like wool. You can't do that. You can't make your sins white as snow. But God can. There's another bully. And this bully often comes with guilt. They really kind of run in a gang. The second bully... Well, let me just tell you this. By this time, I had had the privilege of meeting a great Christian psychologist. And I was still feeling all this guilt, and I was trying to get to the bottom of it. And so I shared with him all the things where I felt like I was coming up short. And all of a sudden, James looked at me, and he said, Let me ask you a question, Mark. Who really gets close to you? Oh, I said, everybody. I'm real outgoing. I'm real transparent. Everybody gets close to me. He looked at me like I hadn't even said it, and he said, who really gets close to you? Who really gets inside that inner chamber that's the real Mark Hoover? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, my world is very intense. I deal with problems at 100 miles an hour every day. And a lot of times I just want to shield the people around me from what I'm dealing with. And, and then on top of that, most of them couldn't, couldn't help me anyway and wouldn't even understand. So a lot of times I just sort of like keep that inner chamber Very closed. You know, there's an evil genius to Satan. Because he knows that you and I need people. And we need people on the inside close to us. And what I discovered, you know, when I began to really open my life and open my heart, I found out there were a whole lot of people who really did want to be in my inner chamber. But let me tell you what Satan did, and this is the reason why I say he's an evil genius, because If we shut everybody else out from being inside the inside room, and if we have guilt, the first bully, guilt will make us shut out God. And if Satan can get you to shut people out of your life and to think that God won't have anything to do with you, he can put you on an island where you will deal with the second bully, which is isolation and aloneness. Guys, I want to tell you, please don't shut love out of your life. My guess is there are people who love you. And they may not understand everything you're going through, but they would like to be there. Well, let's just go to the worst-case scenario. Let's just say there's somebody here today, and you say, Mark, there is nobody in my life who wants to be close to me. I want to tell you that if everybody else leaves, God is there. And in Isaiah 41, 10, God says, well, I want to read the verse to you. God says, don't be afraid, for I'm with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Now, if we're not careful, we could think that that's just a poetic statement. God restating the same thing three times. I will strengthen you, help you. I will uphold you. But that isn't what it is at all. Those are three levels of care. God says, I will strengthen you. That's just every day. You and I have something to do, we have work to do. God is saying, Look, I'll give you the energy and the strength that you need to accomplish what you need to accomplish. But how many of us know that you can't do everything by yourself? There are just going to be tasks that you can't do by yourself. There are going to be situations in life that you're just not going to be big enough for. And God said, Look, when you come to one of those, I will help you. I will come along and it won't just be you, I'll help you. But then God knew there were going to be days and seasons where we just couldn't function. We just can't do anything it's everything we can do just to get out of bed and god says not only will i strengthen you and help you i will pick you up and carry you well the third bully and i remember this real well because i wasn't getting i wasn't getting better and and Mary Alice knew that she just needed to get me out, and our board was so good. They just said, Mark, whatever time you need, whatever help you need, we're, we're with you. You've been pouring into our lives for 25 years. We want to invest in you. So I found myself on the 23rd of December getting on an airplane to fly to Phoenix. And we were in a beautiful place thanks to the kindness of our leadership here at New Spring. And the reason I was there was to be part, to be an inpatient for a, a clinic that their specialty was in dealing with leaders who were going through difficult times, difficult seasons. And so I was to be an inpatient there for like two weeks. And and so the first day I was at this clinic, I never will forget. I had the privilege of talking to the guy who was the head and the owner of the clinic. He was a well-known, nationally-known speaker, and he was so excited that I was there. So he just invested three hours of his time to talk to me. And when we got through with that conversation, as honest to God as I can possibly be, I thought to myself, I'm really messed up, but I think I could help you. (laughs) That's a fact. (laughs) I thought. I'm not feeling well right now. Your issues are hardwired. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was on the plane that day, I mean, I still remember getting up at 4 o'clock that morning and writing a note to you that would be on Facebook and go out an email, and we went to Midcontinent Airport. And honestly, by this point, I'm like a zombie. I'm checking in at the gate and going through security. And I remember finally getting our seats on the airplane, and I turned to Mary Alice, and I said these words, I don't think I can ever go back. See, if Satan can ever make you think that you don't have any future, he can get you to fall out of the basement. I don't know why people are suicidal. That's a complicated thing for me, and it's for someone who's a real pro. But I do think that one of the things that the enemy wants to get you to do is to think that you don't have a future. But the thing of the matter is, (laughs) it wasn't right. See, God says this in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. He didn't say, you know the plans I have for you. Or he doesn't say, I know the plans that you have for you. God said, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not disaster. To give you a future and a hope. Have you ever wished you could go back in time and talk to yourself? The person you are now talk to the way you were. I mean, how many of us would like to go back and talk to ourselves at 16? If the person I am now could go back and talk to that man that I was, On December 23rd of 2010, sitting there with his head in his hands telling Mary Alice that he can't go back home, I would like to tell him something. I would like to tell him that you do have a future. And what's even more than this, this valley that you're going through, God is going to use it to reposition you for the five most creative, effective years of your ministry. In Jeremiah 29, 11, there are a couple of words that I love very much. I love the word plans because the, we get the word machinations from that. It means engineering. And what it indicates or what it hints at is a lot of times when we look at our lives, it's just a bunch of pieces that don't make any sense. And God is saying, look, I know the engineering. But the other word that I love is the word know, which means to know from seeing. How many of us have already bought presents for our kids or, or nephews and nieces or grandkids? How many of us have bought presents and we've wrapped them up and the, you know it's already under the tree and the kids will pick it up and they'll look at it and they'll try to guess and they'll try to shake it and you're over there smiling because you know what's in the box, you put it there. And that's what God is saying. God is saying, look, I know your future. I know how the engineering works. I know how the pieces fit together. I put it in the box. I know what's in there. And you may think that it's, a, it's just a bunch of mess that is never going to amount to anything and you may not think you have a future, but God is saying, I know. I put the pieces there. I did it to give you a future and a hope. That's what God is sending you today. I have one minute left. Could I have like three extra minutes today? Um, the fourth bully. You know, if you have guilt, God says, come now, let's settle this. If you have aloneness, loneliness, God is saying, I'm here. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll hold you up. And if you don't feel like you have a future, God is saying, yeah, I've wrapped up the pieces. I know what they're going to do. They're going to be there for a future and a whole. But honest to God, folks, the, the fourth bully is just our own feelings. Isn't it a challenge for all of you who've dealt with emotions or panic or anxiety? Isn't it a challenge for you to deal with the difference between what you feel and what you know to be true? Of all the people who wrestle with depression in the Bible, I think David has to be at the top. I try to read the Psalms, but just keeping it real here, sometimes reading the Psalms, I just want to bang my head on the wall. Because like David is like, oh, how glorious God is. Oh, I'm so messed up right now. Oh, God is so good, but everybody hates me. I mean, it's like, I, I, I want to just say to him sometimes, David, would you just pick one? <laughs> or at least would you just write one Psalm about how good God is and write another song about how, you know, how, how, how messed up you feel. <laughs> but they go back and forth. Let me give you an example. This is in the 46th Psalm. David is he's talking about how good life is and how bad it is. He said, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night, I have only tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. And a lot of us have bad feelings this time of year because of what used to be. And then in verse 5, he just says, why am I so discouraged? In other words, he's saying, I'm depressed. I don't even know why I'm depressed. Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again. My Savior, my God. Oh, good, David's got it now, right? Now I'm deeply discouraged. (laughs) But I will remember you. Verse 7 sums it all up for me. I hear the raging seas, but each day the Lord pours his unfailing love on me. Guys, when I hit the wall five years ago, I thought God was through with me. I thought I was dying. I thought I was dying because I deserved to die. I failed God. I didn't think I had any future. And yet there was the weirdest thing that happened. In the midst of all this that I was going through, there, there were just signs of God's goodness. And I would ask Mary Alice, why is God being so good? I couldn't make sense of it. I remember the day when we arrived at Phoenix. I'd I'd written a little message to you about four o'clock that morning. It hit all of our media about five o'clock that afternoon. And all of a sudden there was an avalanche of messages that came to us. Because I you know, here I am still thinking, has God ever used me for anything? Is there any sign that God has ever used me? And all of a sudden, there was an avalanche of emails and Facebook posts of people saying, Mark, you changed my life. And God, I never thought I could ever find a church where I could experience God. You know, people just wrote. And I, I just passed the computer back and forth. We were crying so hard we couldn't even, you know, we couldn't read out loud. And I remember asking her, why is God being so good to me? I couldn't understand. If God was judging me and punishing me, why were those signs that God was there. And I still remember writing this line. I said, I feel like I'm on an island of doubt surrounded by a sea of grace. The challenge was for me to deal with what I felt on one hand and what I knew to be true on the other. I will always remember the worst day. The darkest day of my life was New Year's Eve, 2010. 2010. Because I wasn't getting any better and the things that I had thought might help me weren't helping. And I can still see that moment where I'm sitting on the couch in the condo in Phoenix. And I remember coming to a place where I asked myself, what is it that I know for sure? And you may chuckle at this. But I said, the one thing I know for sure is that Jesus saves just had those two words, Jesus saves. And I picked up my computer, and I just started writing, not to create anything, just to write. I just started writing. I started writing about God's plan of salvation and how it works. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote on the darkest day of my life. Well, I sort of forgot about it. A couple of weeks later, I started feeling a lot better, came home, jumped right back in, and kind of went right on. But a week or so later, I happened to open up that file. And I came across those things that I'd written about God's plan of salvation. And I thought, this is the best thing I've ever read in my life on salvation. (laughs) Well, it was written out of desperation. And you know what we did with that document? We turned it into a little book. And you hear me every once in a while, every week, I guess, say, If you just prayed to accept Christ, we have a packet for you that's got a DVD and a little booklet. And I always joke and say about as long as somebody has ADD would write. Well, what you need to know was I wrote this book on the darkest day of my life. When I asked the question, what is it, I know for sure. And one day it hit me that the first thing that thousands of people have read after they trusted Jesus as Savior was what I wrote on the darkest day. if you have guilt God is saying come don't go away come now let's settle if you feel alone God is saying I'm there if you don't have any future God is saying you may not know it but I know what I've seen it I wrapped it up I know how the pieces fit and if your feelings are telling you that there's no hope then fall back on the word of God and his promises that he is there and he will never leave you I'm five I'm six minutes over time But I can't leave without giving you an opportunity if you want to pray and invite Jesus Christ to come into your life. If there's anyone here today who say, Mark, I don't know that I'm forgiven, you can know that. God just wants you to ask. I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and you can decide whether you want to pray these words or not. But just bow your head with me, please. And if there's anyone here who say, Mark, I just want to know I'm forgiven, then you can pray with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Would you forgive me and save me? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer, I have a packet I want to give you that has a DVD and a book, about as long as somebody has ADD would write. Now you got to do is come back to guest services and say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give it to you. God bless. Thanks for being here.